Turn to three passages. First in Genesis 1. Genesis 1, 26 and 27. And then we'll turn to Genesis 3. Another passage about the creation of man and woman. But Genesis 1, 26. And God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let him have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image, and the image of God created he him, male and female created he them. So chapter 1 is a very broad perspective of God, and now, as Hebrew often does, zeroes in to the creation of man in chapter 2, and I want to look at 21 to 25. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he slept, and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof, and the rib which God had taken from man, made he a woman, and brought her unto the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones, and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother, and shall cleave unto his wife, And they shall be one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. Turn with me now to the New Testament, Ephesians chapter 5. I want to read from 21 through the end of the chapter. Ephesians 5 at verse 21. Submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So, just like this, ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his his wife loveth himself. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord, the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too 
shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife even as himself, and the wife see that she reverence her husband. So ends our reading of God's holy, inspired, infallible word. Well, the topic you'll see in your programs uh, given to me is husband and wives in the eyes of the Lord. And as I was pondering this very thought, what it means to look at husbands and wives from God's perspective, uh, this phrase and rendition in the Old Testament, particularly about the kings in Israel, came to mind. The kings either generally did which was right in the eyes of the Lord, or they did that which was evil in the eyes of the Lord. And so as we go through this topic this afternoon, this will be the question that faces us as husbands and wives, if we're married, and if we anticipate that the Lord will grant to us this gift, and even if he doesn't, are we living in such a way that is reflective of Christ in our lives, and then in particular, as a husband and as a wife? Now, the scriptures are very enlightening and instructive, even comforting, we can say, in the way it uses descriptors or pictures to picture for us this union between Christ and his church. And in some sense, this union, this bringing together is, is a mystery. It's, it's a wonder. The creator, not only in the coming of Christ into the world, but the creator has joined himself through his son to his creation. This is something we can't hardly begin to describe in words. And it, it, it is glorious, it is great, it is vast, and um, words fail to describe it. Paul also speaks about the church as being founded upon a, a cornerstone, and that this church is a building, a, a building that is to be the habitation of the Creator, the living, the only true God will dwell in this building, this temple that he is now fashioning, of which there are living stones. And each of those who belong to Christ, he is shaping and molding and fashioning to be a particular stone in this building in which he will dwell uh, forever. And he's already told us that he is indwelling the hearts of his people uh, to this day, in this temple and in this Structure, if you will, this building of God. Well, another picture that Jesus himself presents to us of this union between himself and his people is uh, the vine and the branches. And when he gives this description, he is, he is calling us to abide in the vine. That's where we draw vital union and sap and energy and life from. If we're disconnected, if we have unbelief, we're no longer connected to Christ. We will be cast out and into the burning if we do not abide in the vine. And this picture shows us a clear reality of this relationship that we need to be joined to in this living vital union with another, and namely in Christ. 
And in, in being united to this vine, there is a purpose. There is a purpose why there's even suffering and pruning. Uh, but the whole purpose that is presented to us of being united to the vine and drawing energy from the vine is to bear fruit. Not only when we think of marriage between a man and wife to bear fruit of children, but we think of this union with Christ that the church has, that she is also called to bear abundant fruit. This fruit will be for the world to see and to be drawn uh, to the Father himself. Well, in this talk, what I want to do is look at this picture that Paul, in another instance, is giving to us about husbands and wives, particularly as he reflects upon marriage. And the picture that's set before us, you will find in the text we have read this afternoon, that the believer is bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh. If we, by faith, are united, as Abraham was, to the Lord Christ, the angel of the Lord, if you will, if we're united to Christ, the scriptures define us as his body. He's the head. But we are his body. And Paul uses this picture then to present the reality that Christ now, as the head of his church, the head of his body, is ascended to heaven. And if we are connected to him by faith, he is laying out this foundation. You have nothing to fear. The whole world can be against us, but we have nothing to fear even as the body, because he is concerned for us. So when Stephen is being stoned, it's the Lord, the head of the church, who rises and he watches this event take place. And even when Stephen, his child, his bride, dies, he is taken home to glory, to the great bridegroom. And so we can know that the head protects and keeps and cares and watches over his body, his bride. Well, Paul in Ephesians 5 is also using these kind of analogies to describe this relationship of husbands and wives and how we are to treat each other in that relationship. And as Paul often does, we saw that last night in regard to the troubles happening in Corinth, and he comes to Christ, the great Passover. But here he comes to Christ, who is the great bridegroom. And he sees how Jesus, the the bridegroom, and is united to his bride is a picture of, We could say it's the reality of this, what we experience in our lives as husbands and wives. And so what I'm going to do in this afternoon is look at these passages together. I want to first look at Acts, uh, sorry, at Genesis, and then we'll turn to Ephesians and then look at some of the implications for us. Well, in Genesis, what we find here in this passage is God is describing for us the creation of man. God created us, man, mankind, Adam and Eve, in his image. He was cut, if you will. He was carved. He was made in the image of God. He resembles God. And in Genesis 1, it tells us they were created male and female. We might call this image male and image female. 
There is this close connection then between God as father, as creator, and his creature in this particular way with man. That was day and night difference from all the rest of creation. Yes, he had formed Adam from the dust. He had called the other animals into the existence that each of them had. They had life in them in some sense. They had breath in them. But it was particularly when God breathes life into Adam, into man, it is expressly stated this is the image, the very character of God himself that is given in this relationship. And so we see that man was created by the divine eternal decree of God's counsel. In the moment God breathed into this lifeless form, if you will, of dust made flesh, man became a living soul. And children, we often, if you go to Smithsonian and other places that our government has set up to see various geographic uh, pictures in our, our nature. And, you know, they talk about thousands and millions of years ago and picture this uh, caveman who is beginning to learn how to have fire and wheels and so on. That's, that's not how God created man. He was created with intellect, with knowledge, with understanding, with language, with relationship with his creator, God. He knew things. He spoke. He gave names to these animals. He was obedient to God as his father. No other creature that God created could do this. And so every man and woman that existed from that time, it shares in this this reality. The image of God is imprinted, if you will, upon every human being. We're made, you could say, of these two things, these two substances, a material substance and a spiritual substance. And these two were united in one being. They, they interact together. They're in a relationship together, body and soul, functioning as one a whole united person. That's why death is so unnatural. It is uh, rending apart of what God had created to be united together as one. And so we see in scriptures the, the need we have to see man as a whole unity that is expressive of the image that God has given and imprinted upon us as mankind. And central to this relationship that, that man had was this covenantal relationship. We had in our original creation the righteousness of God. Adam was righteous in the garden. He was capable of losing it, which we know that he and Eve did. And when Christ then comes as the great bridegroom, he restores, he redeems, he grants again his righteousness as a covering for our unrighteousness. So we were created in God's image here in Genesis 1 and 2 with a positive righteousness. It wasn't something Adam accomplished. He was given this righteousness. He was rightly related to God. He was rightly related in that 
first marriage relationship with his wife, Eve. It was a right relationships together. And he was related not only to God and to his wife in a right way, but also to the rest of uh, creation. He held communion with God. God was said to be walking in the cool of the day. He came to talk relationship with his child, his children. And that relationship was exhibited between Adam and Eve before the fall in a very right manner. The moral character of man had its origins by this stamp of the image of God himself. And in this, what God is communicating is that we were created male and female, man and woman, and yet there was this difference between these two people. And this is an important aspect of the challenges we find in our culture today. There is not only a movement from the sexual revolution to the transition of genders, but there is this movement towards an androgyny, a sexless society. Male and female having no distinction, no differences, we're all equal, and even a number of Christians jump on the bandwagon in this idea of this equality that they try to bring out of Scripture itself, that God has created people in this way to be equal in every respect. Oh, we're equal in value, that's true. But he's given us different functions. Just the other day, I saw a little video clip of, of a trans man who who's thinking she's a woman, and using the Bible to cause questions. And what he was saying was, so you who believe in the Bible, and I believe in the Bible too, is basically what he was saying. At the beginning, and you want to use science, he says, to prove your point that we're XY and XX. Well, what happened then, he said, when God took Eve out of the rib of Adam. He was XY, she was XX. How did that happen? He sort of raised the question defiantly. This is simply an answer. Adam, of course, was formed from the dust of the earth. God put his X and Ys together. Why do we limit God to take a rib out of the side of Adam and to make every chromosome in his wife, his rib, to be XX? It was a creation of image that reflected God. Image male and image female. There was a unity with the difference. There was relationship in this marriage that was to reflect God, their father, their creator. And God gave this relationship to Adam and Eve as one of coordination, of working together, a helpmeet, a wife who was walking alongside of her husband, and yet with a subordination in this relationship that was existent by God's own decree and will. This is even understood today in homosexual marriages. You'll see one of the two who is generally taking the role of a man and the other who is taking the role of a woman. And so what we see in Genesis 1 and 2 is that the wife is taken from the man. The man was taken from the ground. But there is a unity that God wants us to see of man and woman. Bone of his bone, 
flesh of his flesh. That's the whole human race. Every one of us here, every human being that ever lived, originates from this one man who is formed from the, of the ground, and out of him, woman, bone of his bone, flesh of his flesh. And together in this unity, both expressing the image of God, coming together in this union that reflects God in his very triune character, gives rise to everyone who ever lived and whoever will live. Now, as I said, this relationship was expressive of God himself in the unity that is to be seen between them. An expression of that unity we can see when one man and one woman come together in marriage. And that marriage bed or the sexual union between these two is not to be seen as something as a need that is to be fulfilled, such as uh, we'll satisfy our stomachs in a few uh, half hour, hour or so. That's a need we have. You don't eat, you don't live. But this aspect in the way in which God has created man and woman was to be an expression of this unity and a most intimacy type of relationship together. It was an expression, really, we could say, of a consummation of a covenant that would be even repeated, that would be acknowledged again and again every time it was engaged in. But our culture has sold us a lie that somehow this is some kind of natural uncontrollable, biological urge. And the focus becomes on the husband or on the wife rather than on what it ought to be, the glory of God. Man and woman knew each other, we read at the end of this passage in chapter 2. And there was no shame. There was no guilt Adam saw his wife, and he sings this song. Verse 23, This is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. This begins the setting in Genesis 1 and 2. And we see God's unity of these two, man and woman, husband and wife, reflective of his own character, imaging his own being, if you will. And so we see, just as there is in Christ, as Paul will lead us into this truth, there is a diversity of members in the body, but they are united to Christ. There is no member in the body of Christ who is more important or more valuable than another member. And just because we're going to be looking at what God has done to place these two, husband and wife, in different roles, does not make one of them more valuable or important than the other. As Paul will express, man or woman, bond or free, we are one, united in Jesus Christ. But sin has entered this world. It changed everything. 
John Piper said this, When sin entered the world, it ruined the harmony of marriage, not because it brought headship and submission into existence, but because it twisted man's humble, loving relationship into hostile domination in some men and lazy indifference in others. And it twisted women's intelligent, willing submission into manipulative subservitude in some women and brazen insubordination in others. Sin didn't create headship and submission. It ruined them and distorted them, made them ugly and destructive. Well, we see then the pattern that God has laid out from the very beginning. Man and woman, bone of his bone, flesh of his flesh. There's much more that could be said about what God is saying about image and this relationship of husband and wife. So how does God see them? He sees them as one flesh. Bone of his bone, flesh of his flesh. But that brings us then to Ephesians 5. And I I challenge you in the next week or so to take up this book of Ephesians and read it in one setting a couple of times. And read it then from what is going to be said in the rest of this presentation this afternoon. And in, in light of one particular word that Paul uses here in this book. And the word is mystery. He begins by using this word, if you turn back to chapter 1, verse 9, he says, Having made known unto us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he hath purposed in himself, that he would gather together in one, in the dispensation of the fullness of time, all things in Christ both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him. There is so much that we could unfold about this mystery that God has now revealed, in particular in the New Testament. But let me say this um, for now. Going back and reading this book and and, and the scriptures in light of this glorious truth, it reveals that what Paul is saying, there is this mystery, this this sort of hidden thing that, that God was intending to do, what he was going to reveal, what he was going to display. The Old Testament saints didn't see it clearly. It's a mystery, Paul is saying, that he's going to set before us that is the plan of God. And here he says, the purpose of the plan is the glorification of his Son. This this points to the centrality of the gospel and the blessings that come to us of God through Christ. And you need to know that this mystery of which Paul is here describing is the mystery of the gospel. If you turn to the end, in the last instance that Paul uses this word mystery in chapter 619, he says, Pray for me, that utterance may be given to me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery 
of the gospel. The gospel that comes to us is setting forth God in all of his glory and his purpose and his heart and his plan. That as we read the Old Testament, it's with shadows and veils. But you and I today have the privilege as we read this book of Ephesians to see this is my plan, God is saying. This was my plan from before time began. And it points to the centrality of his son. And this mystery doesn't mean, as some would have us to believe, that it's a mystery so hidden and so veiled and so secretive and so little few people will ever really know this mystery. That's how it's presented at times, even in Christian churches. You need some special enlightenment to know what it is. No, he's revealed this plan. He makes known this plan, and we can come to know it through the Spirit as well. And the mystery in the first place which Paul is laying before us is that the Gentiles shall be brought into the body of Christ as well as the Jew. As you read the Old Testament, you realize that there were glimpses, shadows, moments of time that this light broke forth. Rahab, a light as they're conquering Canaan, breaks forth. Ruth and others. But you realize what the Jews had done. They who were to be a light to the nations, that God was their God, so the Gentiles would experience the Abrahamic promise to the Families of the earth that we heard about last night. Quenched. Stopped. If you will, in a human sense, this glory of God to be seen. And now in the coming of the New Testament, God makes it clear. He uses Paul particularly as an instrument of blessing to herald this truth that the Gentiles also are to be brought in to this church, this body, the bride, as one with the Jew in Christ. In chapter 3, it becomes clear what Paul is doing. He unpacks what he just stated briefly in in chapter 1. Look at verse 11. Chapter 3. He's just mentioned at the beginning of chapter 3 this mystery of the church of Jew and Gentile. And then he says, according to the eternal purpose which he purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the heart of God from before time. His purpose to bring glory through his son, to himself, by gathering in a people who he would create, who would glorify him. And so Paul understood what God was doing. He understood that God was not bringing in Gentile people to bring them to Jerusalem to to worship like the Jews had always done. No, God was bringing in people 
who would have the faith of Abraham, who would have the experience of Abraham we heard just moments ago. There are not two types of believers, you could say, Jewish believers and Gentile believers. Paul is saying, no, there is one believer, one who is united to Christ, who is the head, and we are the body. There's no longer Jew or Gentile, bond or free, male or female. We are one in Christ Jesus. There is one temple in which God will dwell. And what this means is that every believer throughout the world, no matter their skin color, no matter their history or genealogy, no matter their status in life, no matter whether male or female, all these barriers in Christ are broken down. There is one church, one body, one family, one Lord. And Paul is saying to the church, God will use you to display his glory to the world before principalities and before powers. Look again at chapter 3, verse 9 and 10. And to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery which from the beginning of the world hath been head in God, who created all things by Jesus Christ, to the intent that now unto the principalities and powers and heavenly places might know by the church the manifold wisdom of God. And I believe what Paul is inferring to here, he's inferring that when the church gathers... When the church functions as the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, the angels even look on in utter amazement of what God has done and is doing. They stand, as it were, in astonishment of what God has accomplished and is accomplishing through the blood of Christ. In other words, we could say the word of God is unfolding before the very eyes of angels as the word is proclaimed and heralded forth in the gospel and the mystery is uncovered even more. If the angels stand in awe and wonder, shouldn't we? And literally, we could say what Paul is referring to is this truth that is transpiring. The angels see the manifold wisdom of God. They see that the Father is given as Abraham was called to do it, but God did it in reality of His own Son. They witnessed, the angels did, that which transpired on Golgotha. Can you imagine the angels who worshipped the Son and the Father and all of glory? To see that the Father is silent as the stripes have fallen on His Son and His Son bleeds on the cross in agony. But He arose from the dead and the gospel 
is preached. The angels stand in awe and wonder every time the church gathers for worship. As God is gathering in his people from every nation and tribe and tongue and language, men and women into one body. And this leads Paul to exclaim later as he's going on in this, this, this growing picture of this mystery that he's setting before the Ephesians and before us. He says, And for this cause I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. This is the true and only real Father. And our fatherhood is simply to be a reflection of who God is as Father. Our fathering should resemble his fathering. It's not somehow that, that God is using a human analogy and comparing himself to us. It's the other way around. He ultimately is the father. And we are called to resemble him. And that leads me then to where Paul takes us in Ephesians. We're asking the question in this topic, how does God see husbands and wives? What does God see when he sees a husband, when he sees a wife? I assert to you the first thing that God delights to see and longs to see is his son with his bride. And he longs to see that resembled and patterned and exhibited in our lives as husband and wives as a testimony of what God is doing in this world to the remaining unbelieving world that they would be drawn to him. This mystery now then that Paul is going to be speaking about in chapter 5 of Ephesians is a related history, mystery that he has uh, mentioned before. The mystery now that Paul will be speaking about is that which was unfolded. Yes, they were married in the Old Testament. There was husbands and wives. But it was not in connection with this glorious reality of Christ, the Son of God, and his relationship to his bride. This is new. This is clearly what Paul is saying. We have come now to understand. Just as God had kept hidden from the Old Testament saints that the Gentiles would be part of the covenant community, would be part of the church of body of Christ. The same is true, we could say, with husbands and wives. God had them in view, we could say, before the creation of the world. His son is the glorious husband, the church. His bride. This was his plan from the beginning. And so if we want to learn what God sees in a husband and wife, we need to turn to this relationship that Paul sets before us in chapter 5. Paul mentions the verse that we looked at from Genesis. Paul reminds us of this truth Here in verse 27, no, sorry, verse 
31. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. Verse 30. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. In the preceding verses, what Paul is here stating is that in Christ we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. And notice what he says in verse 30. For we are members of his body. Everyone who Paul has described here and uh, those at Ephesus, uh, Ephesus and those here who he hath quickened, chapter 2, who were dead in trespasses and sins and so on, had come to know the grace of God. That's the we that Paul is talking about. Who knew the experience of having been made alive in Christ are united to Christ. And so he is saying in essence here that we have been raised with him to sit with him in heavenly places. Now he's including husbands and wives in this we who know the Lord. We have been united to Christ by faith. We have become one with Christ. We're married to Christ. We are part of his body, his spiritual body. And every Lord's Supper sacrament that is administered is a reminder of this glorious truth, of this reality. What did we see in Adam? We see it now even more glorious in Christ. Eve received her life, as it were, that flowed out of Adam. Where does the church, the bride of Christ, receive life but from the very side of our Savior that was pierced the church flows forth from the second Adam Christ you see it wasn't an afterthought that God is putting a new spin on what he did in Genesis this is his purpose this is what he intends this was the plan of God And our fathers, in writing the Heidelberg Catechism and other Reformed fathers, in reference then to the Lord's Supper, portray what's happening. They state that this participation in the Lord's Supper is not only embracing with a believing heart all the suffering and death of Christ, which obtains pardon of sin and life eternal, but they say this. Besides this, there is a becoming more and more united to his sacred body by the Holy Spirit who dwells both in Christ and in us. Every time the bride, the church, participates in this sacrament, in this mystical mystery, and we eat the bread and we drink the wine, we are united more and more to the glorious head, Christ. In answer to question 76, they say, although Christ is in heaven and we on earth, yet we are flesh of his flesh and bone of his bone, and that we live and are governed forever by one spirit as members of the same body are governed by one soul. Are you seeing the connection, husbands? Your wife and my wife, is part of my body. Christ.
Christ cares for his church. He loves her. He cherishes her. He defends her. He provides for her. He protects her. That's what Paul is unpacking here in Ephesians 5. You want to see what God sees in a husband? He says, look to Christ. And so the implications for us who are husbands and wives, we will will see this. Paul tells us what God delights to see. What he wants to see in a husband and wife. And so you see that being a husband and wife is not first and foremost about us. It's not about me. It's not about my spouse even. Marriage was not created for self-fulfillment, self-satisfaction. Marriage was given to bring glory to God. To reflect the glory that God has within himself and which he shows through his son as the great husband and his bride, the church. Just as the world around us, as Paul says in Romans 1, bears witness to the power and the glory and the Godhead, It ought to be that Christian marriage reflects the glory of God so that unbelievers will see, stand amazed in wonder. What a contrast we have. Opportunity to demonstrate by grace today in this confused, perishing world. Last night we saw the challenges that we face as family. But what an opportunity is given to us in our marriages to reflect Christ and the church. And so what this means is spelled out for us here in Ephesians 5. What it means is that how I treat my spouse is going to be seen by the world. It's going to be seen ultimately by the angels and more ultimately by God. What does he see when he sees you, husband? When he sees you, wife? And one of the things that first comes to mind as we look at this relationship is love. What we have pictured here in this chapter and in this relationship between Christ and the church and between husbands and wives is love to the fullest to the deepest degree. This love of Christ is not general and sort of vague and sort of dispersing and as osmosis throughout the world. No. This love of Christ was selective. It is personal. Paul says, Christ loved me. And gave himself for me. Paul says Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. When you think about it, a man who is looking for a bride, he's searching for her. He's looking everywhere. 
And finally, he finds her. And her, his eyes narrow upon her. They're, they're taken up by her. They're exclusively focused upon her. And to be in relationship with her and, and her alone. And that's the picture of Christ. He loves his bride. He loves her with an everlasting love. A love that cannot dim, that will not dim. A love that will abide forever. A love that cannot be broken. A love whereby the believer is able to say, we love him because he first loved us. And so the life of the bride is found in her husband. He is her life. And for the believer who has tasted of the love of Christ, you realize it's a well that never runs dry. The love of Christ is set to accomplish his purpose. And that purpose, Paul tells us, Christ's love is so displayed, so given, and so enacted, so that his bride is washed is transformed that he will present his bride spotless, without blemish, without embarrassment. Father, this is my bride. His love is powerful. His love at time needs to correct. But in all of this, there is one purpose. He will bring his bride to himself in glory. Forever that the love between Christ and his church will fully, freely, unhindered, be expressed, be experienced without sin. And at times when we by faith have an insight into this glorious truth, we can hardly take it in. And we know that sin so mars our own marriages. But God, with his fatherly eyes, looking upon husbands, and he's looking upon wives, and he says, in my son, if you trust in him, there is everything you need to follow him. To be like him. And at times we, as the bride of Christ, we listen to what? the word expresses about his love for us. And we bow on our faces and we wonder, how can this be? How can he love me in this way, who am so unworthy, this glorious, beautiful Savior? Why would Christ, why would God take thought of me so deeply fallen into sin? Why would he love me so profoundly, so deeply as he does? It's a love we don't deserve. It's a love we can't explain. It's a love we hadn't sought for. It was a choice he made. And young man, you're looking for a bride. It's God's way. But the calling you have is to reflect Christ. In just the ways that we have been describing. And when we've, come to, when we've come to know something of Christ by faith, when our eyes have been opened to see his promises and his word, 
then we begin to say this love wherewith he has loved us. It's because we are bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh. How much closer, united can you be than this? That's what our marriage ought to be. Christ is preparing his bridegroom for that glorious day when he will come again and present her to his father. And this is the kind of love Paul is saying here we are to reflect. This is what God delights to see. Every woman, every wife, hearing this word ought to know something of this kind of love from her husband. Husbands, this is the kind of love we are called to show to our wives. Self-sacrificing, servant-serving heart for the transformation of your wife into the likeness of Jesus. And this kind of love shown to a wife who also is undeserving will then begin to display the very character she is called to display as well. When a husband will love his wife in a way because he himself has tasted of the love of God in Christ. And so as he hears this call of Paul, this is a mystery. It's now made known to you. This is what we're called to do in the strength of Christ. You become one in this wonderful bond and union of marriage. Love your wives. So that your wife Just as believers find it hard to believe Christ could love them, they will wonder, marvel, that you love them. You know, when we love Christ because he loved us, we don't simply be satisfied with communing with Christ a couple of times a year. No, we're looking for him to speak. His word, his spirit to our hearts to to bring home these truths in communion, in fellowship, in relationship. And there are marriages that are like two ships passing in a night. Oh, we talk about the kids, we talk about they got to go here and there, but it's not like this. This is what we're called to reflect. We all come short. That's not the point of this message. It's not the point to beat us into the ground and say, we're all failing. We all are. But that's not the point. The point is that Paul is setting before us, here is the reality. Husbands and wives, flee to Christ. He has everything you need as your husband. And find day by day, putting off this and putting on that, day by day, treating your wife in the way that he treats you. And this ought to be then true in our relationships as well. 
I know sin has marred our relationships. But God delights to see this being revealed and fulfilled more and more. The Lord loves and cherishes his church. They're his. He identifies, we could say, with them that he prays to his Father. I pray that they be one even as we are one. And Christ does not hold back any authority, any power, any energy. He will leave no stone unturned in caring for his bride. He will protect her. He will care for her. He will grant them his grace when the path is long and lonely. He will give his mercy when we stumble and fall. He will help us back on our feet again and put us upon our path that we are called to walk. He will gather us in his arms and press us close to his heart. He will say, this is the way. Walk in it. And dear husband, this is what your wife is looking for. Not a savior. She needs to find that in Christ alone. But when you recognize your own failure as a husband, when you take your wife by the hand and you bow together at the throne of Christ, confessing your sins and coming before him together in renewed repentance and trust, she sees this character of her greater husband right before her eyes. Dear believer, Christ will never leave you nor forsake you. You're on his heart. You're on his mind. You're bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh. Are our wives, husbands, on our hearts, on our minds? Do we care for them and cherish them? Husbands, this is what we are called to be in the eyes of God. And now, dear sisters, God is calling you to something in this passage as well. God delights to see something in you. God does not only desire to see the love of a husband shining forth, but he delights to see submission of the wife. And he does so because just as his love is found at the heart of the relationship within the Trinity, this this reflection even there, this relationship of authority and submission found there. And Father and Son, and I'm not talking about the eternal Son submission issue with the Father. But as Jesus, the God-man, has humbled himself to his Father... And his Father's will in all things, even unto death. This is the call in all things, Paul says, for a wife. Paul reminds us of this God-man who submitted himself to, to God. 1 Corinthians 11. The head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. And in Philippians 2, where he talks about Christ, he he mentions who in the form of God thought it not robbery to be equal with God. He made himself of no reputation and took on himself the form of a servant made in the likeness of man and humbled himself. 
Jesus submitted himself completely, wholly, totally to his Father's will. As a man, he came to know and understand what that will was. Even though the will of his father meant he needed to go to death, yet he was promised a seed in obedience. And in some way here we can see that each person of the Trinity even is involved in salvation. The father is not the son, the son is not the father, and neither are the Holy Spirit. But each person in God, there is no hierarchy, if you will. Each has their role in accomplishing things, in planning salvation, in coming as the Son of God, joining himself to the nature of man, and the Holy Spirit working in the hearts of his people. Just as in marriage, there's a husband and a wife, equal in value and worth. But God is calling you to different tasks and roles from the beginning, and particularly in the marriage between husband and wife. Let's turn to this text specifically. Paul says here, the church is in subjection to Christ as Lord. He's not saying here that the church and Christ are equal, but he is saying that the calling is like. Just as the church is to submit to Christ, so the wife is to her husband in all things. So ultimately, what God is seeing in a wife is whether her spirit, her heart, is like what ought to be found in the church. Dear wives, are you subject to your husband? In everything. Do you delight? The church delights in Christ, in his headship. I know Christ is perfect, but in, in ways in which your husband is given to you of God, are you delighting in him? Do you honor him? Do you respect him? Are you wanting your way as a wife, or are your heart strings moved? To your husband's desires, legitimate desires. And dear sister, as you consider this truth, I am not here talking about what we hear much today about abuse. Your husband has no right in this idea of submission to abuse or misuse his wife in any way. He is not being like Christ. But what we're considering in this moment is what Paul's teaching is about what God is to see in a wife. God delights to see what he sees in the church. What does he see? He sees the church delighting in Christ, submitting to his wish, his will, ready to give herself. The church ought to be ready to give ourselves in light of the love that is bestowed upon us in Christ, even to a martyr's death. This is the calling of the church, of the bride, of the wife. Are you affirming, honoring your husband's leadership and authority? Are you walking as a help? 
alongside of your husband in the way that God has given you gifts and talents to accomplish what things he may be lacking. Does the world see what it disdains about submission and all kinds of authority and relationships? Does the world see a joyful submission to your husband that reflects the church. And the last thing I want to say here is with regard to what Paul says. It's the reason I read verse 7, verse 21. He says, submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. It talks about respect. Paul begins this whole section. Husbands, love your wives. Yes, it comes to this. But first of all, he has addressed wives. Verse 22, submit yourselves to your own husbands as to the Lord. Submit yourselves, he says, to one another in the fear of God. Someone once said, Ultimately and most importantly, the reason to love your wife and respect your husband, as the Bible instructs, is to please God. It's not really about your spouse. It's not about your love, respect, and obedience to Christ. Even if your husband or wife isn't reciprocating, you answer to Christ not your spouse. I'll give you three more quotes and we will close. Keller, Tim Keller, he says, marriage was created to be a reflection on the human level of our ultimate love relationship and union with the Lord. It's a sign and foretaste of the future kingdom of God. Harvey says, the gospel and its lavish grace is the foundation for a thriving marriage. Is grace, as it's found central with Christ and the church, is grace central in your relationship as husband and wife? Ready to forgive, ready to reconcile, ready to live as God sees us as husband and wife. And last, recognize that God has given us marriage to enjoy. He created it for our pleasure. He created it to give us a glimpse of his covenant love for us. But marriage also takes a commitment, a commitment to sacrifice for the benefit of someone else, for the glory of God. Jesus If you belong to him, bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh, we'll use this truth to accomplish his purpose. What's he doing? Washing with the water of his word and sanctifying and purifying us. The purpose of Christ, the great bridegroom, is not to destroy us, lay us flat today and and tell us how bad we've been as husbands and wives. If you walk away from this with that thought, you miss the point of the Apostle Paul and the Spirit of Christ. His purpose today is to refine us, shape us, mold us, so that one day, bone of his bone, flesh of his flesh, he will be able to say as he presents us to his Father, Behold my bride. Are we living?
does the world see? What God sees as husband and wife. Let's pray. Merciful and gracious God. We need grace. We need forgiveness. We need the great bridegroom himself. O Spirit of Christ, dwell in us and use this word to convict us, to comfort us, to guide and lead us in all our relationships. And it's not for us to look at our spouse and their failures, but to look at ourselves and cry out by renewal in repentance and to see what a willing, gracious Savior and husband we have that we can come to time and again who never turns us aside. Lord, go with us the rest of this conference as well and bless our time over a meal. Bless the food and those who have so lovingly prepared it. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.